0: Having my back out last week uh, is a crazy way to take some time off. Uh, I'm still a little sore and a little tired, as maybe you can tell, but it's really good to be back with you guys. Uh, I did get to spend an awful lot of time with Netflix, and uh, so among other things, I uh, began to check out a new series on Netflix, it's actually, it's not new, it's like three years old, but this is this is new for me, uh, called House of Cards. Uh, I heard from someone that it's uh, from someone who used to work in Washington, D.C., that it's perhaps the most realistic Washington, D.C. show that's ever been made. Um, now, they taught me in seminary. I've got to be careful about the TV references I make, because people may go watch them and be shocked. So here's the disclaimer. I'm not recommending it. It's very dark. It's not for children. So there it is. But it stars Kevin Spacey, and no one can do dark, flatline cynicism like Kevin Spacey. And it's about D.C., Uh, so those things go together very well. Um, So Kevin Spacey plays Frank Underwood, who is a representative from South Carolina. And he has participated in a presidential campaign. He's got a lot of foreign policy experience, and so he wrote the whole foreign policy Section of the campaign, whatever you call it, was the foreign policy advisor. And so the president who was running, you know, the presidential candidate had promised him that he would get to be secretary of state after uh, after the election. So shortly after the election, this candidate wins. He's the president-elect, and uh, a new staff member comes to Frank Underwood, Kevin Spacey, and lets him know that they are going to nominate somebody else to be Secretary of State. And they're very thankful for his efforts, but they need him in the House of Representatives. So Frank Underwood is crushed for about an afternoon. And then he revives. And he decides that if he's going to be thrown under the bus like this, that there are no more allegiances and his life. And nothing will stop him from power and from the ability to destroy and crush everyone in his path. And so that, which all takes place in the first ten minutes of the first episode, really is the pretext for the entire show. Um, There's this bizarre little thing they do in the series where all these characters are talking, and then Kevin Spacey looks at the camera and says what he's thinking. The first time he did it, I was like, whoa, that's weird. But it's now my favorite part of the show because you get to see what's really inside him. You know, so he's at the, at the ball where they're celebrating the election of this candidate. And he looks at the camera and says something to the effect of, do I believe in this guy? I don't know. But I know where the winds blow. And I know that he has the right smile and the handshake and that he was going to get elected. And this was the train to which I should connect. And um, he talks a lot about the allure of power that he's a man who desires power. He's out for himself and to destroy others. It's, um, it's horrifying to watch and thrilling all at the same time. I think because there's something in all of us that is that way, that wants power And glory in that way. And kind of almost wishes that we were uninhibited to the extent that Frank Underwood is. So we could actually just go get it without any shame. The way that he does. Our passage today is about John the Baptist. And Jesus says, speaking of power and glory. That John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived He says that about John the Baptist. He is the greatest man, the greatest one who's ever been born of a woman. So in your quest to be great, at least in Jesus' estimation, you've got to come in at number three. (laughs) After Jesus and John the Baptist. In this passage today, I think we see why Jesus says that John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived. Because John received glory, and he gave it up. And he gave it to Jesus, and he found joy instead. That in this life you can pursue glory, or you can pursue joy. But you can't pursue both. Michael Kelly, a pastor of mine I had in the past, was talking about this passage and he used a phrase that is just a great quote that I've used for a lot of things ever since then and I'm going to use to kind of outline my message. And his quote was this, God made enough significance for Jesus and enough joy for everyone else. You put it this way, that God made enough glory for Jesus and enough joy for all the rest of us. Um, the passage begins, so this is right after uh, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. He's in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Uh, He has a conversation with Nicodemus. He talks uh, about salvation. Jesus shares John 3.16, which Brandon um, spoke on last time. And then it says that Jesus remained in Judea and went out to the countryside. So this is just a transitional statement. He's baptizing. John the Baptist is also still baptizing. A discussion breaks out. All this leads to verse 26. This is the disciples of John the Baptist. They come to John the Baptist and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Well, they're not all going to him because it just told us that many people are still coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. But the point is a lot of people are going to a lot more than are going to John the Baptist. In fact, many of the people who were following John the Baptist have left him, including John and Andrew, and are going over to Jesus. That um, John the Baptist had a certain glory about him. You know, In the beginning, in chapter 1, we hear that he's preaching out in the wilderness, and many are coming to him to be baptized. Even the leaders are coming to him to check him out, to understand his teaching, that there's a certain amount of fame and notoriety that's building around John the Baptist, and you don't get that many people gathering around you, following you, leaders coming to you, asking you questions, without gaining some amount of cultural influence. That John the Baptist built a ministry that had an effect on the establishment in Jerusalem and the people. He had followers People who wanted to learn from him. The thing was coming together. Jesus comes along. He bears witness to Jesus. And overnight, his ministry vaporizes. Everything he's built for, everything he's worked for, is uh, in a sense coming to an end. That the writing is on the wall. That Jesus has taken his glory. He's now baptizing. He's doing what John the Baptist was. Jesus has taken his glory for himself. And John the Baptist's disciples are concerned. We've talked about Jesus before as the great king. We talked on Easter about how he's the king that we've always longed for. That he has the character of one that we long for in our leader. That he is the only one who is good and right and true and beautiful and yet... Gracious at the same time as just. But not only does Jesus have the character to be the great king, he, he actually is the great king. And in being the great king, he takes the glory for himself. That Jesus is the glorious one to whom all glory is due. We find out in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the one who made the world in the beginning. And so, all the passages in Scripture giving praise for the glory and the majesty of creation itself go to Jesus. It says in Psalm 102 Of old, you have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. In Psalm 92, it says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands, I will sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord, how your thoughts are very deep if Jesus is the one at the Father's command that created the world in the beginning, it was the work of his hands that all these praises are due to him. That in the very beginning from creation, the angels and all of creation, the trees and the rocks themselves cry out, giving glory and praise to Jesus for his work. So not only is Jesus praised in the beginning at creation, he receives all praise in the new creation. At the end, Revelation 21, that Jesus, you know, we know, has become the new temple, and we, his people, are being built into his temple where his spirit dwells. And so we hear this about the temple, Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's Jesus. That Jesus is the temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its light is the Lamb. That Jesus is so glorious. His glory lights the city. That you don't need to be afraid of nighttime or darkness or death anymore, because it's always light. And the reason why it's always light is Jesus is so there. He's so radiant. It's as if everything was filled with light. And then finally we hear this. By its light the Lamb's light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. That God is a God who loves uh, creativity and variety and multiculturalism. All the cultures were his idea. And in Revelation right here, it says that all the cultures have existed from the beginning to bring Jesus glory. And at the end, the nations, the kings, the leaders of every nation, exist to enter into the great city, which is all of us, gathered around, and the light of the Lamb, and before the Lamb, to lay down the glory of every culture and nation that has ever existed. The Sumerians, the Russians, the South Africans of all types, the Americans, the Native Americans, will all be there to present the glory of their cultures before the glory of King Jesus. And we hear in Revelation over and over again about the 24 elders. The elders are, just as in our church, representatives of the people that kind of stand between the people and God. They represent the people to God. They represent God to the people. There's 24 of them. Almost certainly because there's 12 Patriarchs, 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, and how many apostles? Twelve was twelve was twelve. Twenty-four. So there are twenty-four elders. Jesus, John is looking into heaven. He sees Jesus on his throne, and in front of the throne are the 24 elders: Simeon, Reuben, Levi, Judah, John, Peter, Thaddeus, Andrew, the 24 of them are gathered around the throne. And what do they do? They fall down. That's their job. Every time somebody says something in Revelation, what happens? The elders fall down. Here's an example. Revelation 4. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. They have crowns, by the way. This is a total aside. By playing the part they played in the story, Judah has glory. Dan of the tribe of Dan has glory. He is a crown on his head, for having played a part in the history of Israel, for having founded a tribe, for having testified to the glory of God. He has a crown. And what does each one of them do with it? They cast it on the ground before the great king. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created the 24, those 24 guys existed and lived and lived the story of their lives so that they might arrive in heaven at the end of the ages and raise their hands and testimony and say, Jesus did all things well. And that is also why you are alive. That I've spoken before about the story of each one of our lives. This is the way Jesus works. He's telling stories in time and space. He took six stone tablets. He took six stone jars filled with water, turned them into wine. It's a symbol. It's a picture that took place in time and space to testify of what God will do. And the story of your life, that Jesus has been with you all the days of your life, from your birth until now, through hard times and stupid things you've done and great things that you've done, working and shaping you, making you more and more like himself. He's going to heal all of your wounds and make sense of all of your story. At the end of the age, he's going to give you a new name that will make sense of the whole story of your life. But what if the climax, the point of that whole story is that so you could gather together with all the other saints in heaven, fall down, raise your hand, and say, Jesus did all things well. Last week was the, um, the 45th anniversary of the Apollo 13 mission this has been here a long while, you know that um, I'm an aviation geek that extends to space occasionally. Um, so I got read some articles kind of reliving the history of Apollo 13. This is the, the mission to the moon that went to the moon but didn't get to land because there was a explosion on board and some other dramatic things and everyone lived. Anyway, point is, um, the guys got to the moon by riding on the top of the Saturn V rocket. They only launched it like 13 times. It's the biggest rocket that has ever been made. It had uh, three stages, not counting the command module itself. So stations, stages one and two were just to get the massive thing off of the launch pad up into the atmosphere orbiting around the Earth. So they get up to this point. They do a couple orbits. Houston checks everything out. Everything looks good. They are ready to go to the moon. NASA speak. They call this translunar injection. So you're orbiting the Earth, just like the space shuttle used to do, and then stage three kicks in. (laughs) You're thrust back in your seat. We are now gathering speed, breaking free from Earth's gravity. This thing rockets you out 24,000 miles an hour, faster than a bullet out of a gun. You are headed towards the moon. Nothing can stop that now. And so when stage three is done, it's done its job. Not only has the command module... Exited Earth's gravity. Stage 3 has exited Earth's gravity, but we don't need stage 3 anymore. The command module detaches from stage 3, and it keeps going. The stage 3 rocket from Apollo 10 and 11 are orbiting the sun to this day. After that, they figured they could do something more useful. They put some uh, seismometers onto the moon. And so Apollos 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, they crashed stage three into the moon so they could kind of see how the moon shakes. Here's the point. Jesus is like the astronauts, the command module. That's the important part, that we testify to him. John the Baptist testified, got him out into translunar ejection. John the Baptist, his job is done. He's headed out to pasture. No one ever cares about stage three. I bet none of you knew that they were still out there. No one cares because we're interested about where the astronauts are headed to the moon. And that is John the Baptist's role and that's our role to lift up the king and to quietly head out into orbit around him. Well, there's a few things that would keep us from doing this well. One of them is the glory of following another. John the Baptist's disciples are really upset. That John the Baptist is the great teacher. They came to this man. He taught them well. They received truth. They love this man. They have hitched their wagon into John the Baptist. And it's as if he's being shamed. Jesus is shaming John the Baptist. How dare he do that? Verse 26, again, that... Um, They don't even use Jesus' name. Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, are they subjugating Jesus to John the Baptist? Well, who is Jesus anyway? He's just the one that John the Baptist bore witness to. John the Baptist is the one here that does bearing witness. It's almost like they're kind of putting Jesus in his place below John the Baptist. That um, when you hear... Good news, the word preached from any human being, there is something beautiful and electric about that. And there is such a temptation to, um, to become a follower. That you become the sort of person who just constantly listens to Tim Keller sermons. Or R.C. Sproul sermons. Except even those guys themselves, Tim Keller and R.C. Sproul, talk about how it's important to not listen to one. Just one person. Uh, Todd Capen was at a Ligonier conference years ago. And if you've never heard of the Ligoniers, it's the ministry that exists to glorify R.C. Sproul. <laughs> Not really. But that's kind of what we wish it was because he organized it and he's, you know, teaching. But how many of you guys have heard of R.C. Sproul, by the way? Okay, so this is going to work. So Todd's at a Ligonier conference, and, you know, all the little guys get up to speak, and now the keynote speaker is coming up. R.C. Sproul is going to give an address to the R.C. Sproul convention. (laughs) And uh, Steve Brown, if you've ever heard of him, it's his job to introduce R.C. Sproul. He's got to do the introduction. So he gets up to the pulpit, and he says, it is my pleasure now to introduce you to the greatest man who's ever lived. People all over the world, for generations, hang on this man's words. His words have been translated into countless languages. Lives have been impacted by his very teaching and his presence. The man is Jesus Christ. R.C., would you come up here and tell us about him? It's the greatest introduction of all time at a Christian conference. But it's a good reminder to avoid the danger of becoming uh, a groupie. But there's even a greater danger, and that's keeping the glory for ourselves. And John the Baptist, because he's the greatest man who ever lived, would have none of it. He answers in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Yeah, it's a profound and amazing and a humble stance. Who, who does that? Who has their life's work and their ministry taken away from them and says, a man can receive nothing except what is given him from heaven. The Lord gave it to me. He's taken it away. And that's okay with me. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Nicodemus and how all faith begins with desperate faith. I think this is the response of someone who understood that. That if you start, if your starting point is a stance of desperation that we needed to repent, for the kingdom of God was coming. We needed to be saved by this man who made creation itself, who, to whom all glory is due, who came and welcomed us in. That there's an amazing freedom that comes with that. Just the shock that Jesus saved me. Jesus, to whom all glory is due. Why would we not give him everything? Why not? hasn't he earned it? Isn't that what he's worth? It's in a sense to live within the way things really are. That God has everything. And it's all for Jesus. Colossians chapter 1. Everything was made through Jesus and by him and for him. And isn't it great that God and Jesus decided to share some of that with us for a little while. We get to share in everything that they have, and we give it back to them. That's so great. It's the freedom of having been in need and having been saved and being in love with the glory and the beauty of the one that has greater glory. Before I went to seminary, I interned for a couple years in college campus ministry, At the University of Nebraska, and um, yes, thank you for that. If you were from Nebraska, you would understand. RUF is centered in the southeast. It started in Mississippi. There's like 13 RUFs in the state of Mississippi, you know, and so it's centered around there. They have an annual summer conference where. All of the college students in the whole country gather together in one place, and since it's centered in the southeast, of course that happens in the southeast, in Panama City Beach, Florida. Which from Nebraska is a two-day road trip. So you drive from 15 hours from Nebraska to somewhere between St. Louis and Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and then you do a homestay with somebody, and then you drive a second day, and you get to Summer Conference in Panama City Beach, Florida. When we went together, of all of the RUFs, all 100 of them in the entire country, Nebraska, had the highest percentage of students who went to summer conference. That when you live in Mississippi, going down to Panama City is just not that special. You know, and so I'd chat with the campus ministers there. How many of you, you know, is like Mississippi State, 400 students at the ministry. How many came to summer conference? 20. They go to the beach all the time, not a big deal. But for my Nebraska students, This was their chance to get together with other people. (laughs) We brought students with us who had never seen the beach. I was delighted to be their intern and minister to them because they had a joy, not just at the beach, but at the opportunity to gather together with other Christians and celebrate, just to be together for a week, greater than anyone else. Because when you come from Nebraska, you come from a place of humility. (laughs) Greater than anyone else. And it was their glory that I don't think any other ministry had such cohesion, love for one another, and delight just to be present at a conference together. Just as we can have glory that we of all people get to be gathered together in Jesus' presence and give him our stuff. John's illustration is that of a marriage. Twenty-nine, Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I must increase, he must increase, But I must decrease. Look, one, if the image is of a marriage between Christ and his bride, the church, as it is in other places, that implies a requirement of complete fidelity between Jesus and us, that we are the bride. And we are to love him alone and to not mess around or have an affair with anyone else, that we are here to be prepared for marriage to the one with a greater glory. But also, look, John the Baptist had a ministry to testify to Jesus, and we have a ministry like him. For if you're a Christian, you are here in a certain way to bear witness, to testify to the glory of the greatest one. And just was it was John the Baptist's job to prepare the bride for her husband and not to get the bride to love him himself. It's our job to give our glory over to Jesus, to point the bride, any who would follow him, to Jesus, rather than to keep the love for ourselves. The Apostle Paul had the same perspective. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says this to the Corinthians, I feel a divine jealousy for you, that um, he has a special love and care for the Corinthian church. He planted it. I feel a divine jealousy and love for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ that Paul saw his calling as having a special love for each church, not so they would love him, so that they would love Christ and not be distracted by any other husband. And John is not only okay with this role, he has joy. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. That for him, instead of seeking glory, to give it away to lay it at the feet of Jesus became his greatest joy if Jesus took John's glory he's going to take your glory too whatever glory that you may receive from your status, of your accomplishments at work, from your brilliant students, from the command that you earned of a ship, from the adoration of your spouse and your children, at the end of the day, Jesus will claim that as his own. That everything well that you did for which you received glory is his work, his accomplishment. And he will receive it. He will take it for himself. That there's a call for us for great care, not just in testifying to Christ, but in the way we treat those under our command, those we are married to, our children, our friends. That we receive their love, but their glory and their ultimate devotion is for Jesus alone. Well, how do you live like that? This passage doesn't really help us out with that. But I will say this, that um, not only does it say that John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived, it also said that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He was anointed for ministry to Christ. This, This is what the Spirit does. And it's what he is already doing in your life, freeing you from the attachment of your own glory that you might also give it over to Christ. That John was shaped by the Spirit, and he was shaped by difficulty and the suffering of his own life. When I was in seminary, uh, everybody's favorite professor was David Calhoun. He's been teaching at Covenant Seminary since before I was born. He graduated from the same seminary, and he wanted to go get a Ph.D. in New Testament and Greek. And the man who was president of the seminary at that time came to him and said, David, there's a million people out there with Ph.D.s in New Testament and Greek, but there's a shortage of church history. Guys, I need you to go get a degree in church history and come back here and teach at Covenant. And so he gave up his dream to be a professor of New Covenant. He shipped off, headed to Edinburgh, got himself a PhD. in church history, came back, began teaching Covenant Seminary. He's teaching there still. In 1989, he was diagnosed with cancer. and given three months to live. Dr. Calhoun is still alive, and he still has cancer. And he's had a few periods between 1989 and now when he's been cancer free. But most of the time, since 1980, between 1989 and now, he has gone through chemotherapy or radiation in his fight against cancer. His body is toast. He's in his 70s. He looks like he's in his 90s. and He's still teaching. And I've never met someone who is so free or so at peace. He said recently in an interview, God is in charge of everything. All things work together for good for his people. And he does walk with me through the valley of the shadow of death. And as long as he continues to give me the opportunity to remain here, I want to love him with my heart and my soul and my neighbor as myself. It is a privilege to be alive in this world and serve the Lord in whatever way he wants us to serve him. He's so free. Dr. Calvin delights to read children's books to his class. He read us The Runaway Bunny because he did not want us to miss the message of the gospel. That having spent his life serving the great king and in many ways having his life wrecked, he has discovered the great freedom of giving his glory and his service over to the king. The life given over to Christ ends in peace and joy even though you may lose everything and a life given over to anything else ends in bitterness. Let's pray.